0: We want to give You praise and esteem You highly for the gracious God, the merciful God You are. Father, we thank You for the grace and mercy You have bestowed upon us that we should be called Your children. I thank You for the gift of Your Son by whom we are able to join together, by whom we are able to fellowship with one another, and we give You praise for that. Father, we thank you for the death that he bore on the cross. As we celebrated communion this morning, being reminded of the sacrifice that was made as your son bore our sins, as you put him to death and turned your back, allowing him to take our punishment and our shame. And Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I hope that it helps us be motivated to love you, to love the Father who so graciously and lovingly gave his son that we might be redeemed, that we might enjoy this fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. Help us to know you more, to love you more, to reciprocate the love you have bestowed upon us. In your name, amen. When you are accused or when someone is accused of a crime or of wrongdoing, what is the natural response we have? It's one of defense, isn't it? In a court of law, the one being accused is rightly called the defendant. Because they want to make their, pl- their case. They want to plead either why they're not guilty or why the punishment should be mitigated. But there is something unique to humans that even though we don't like being accused, we really don't like being accused unjustly. When the accusation is false, when the persecution that's followed is based upon false accusations, our emotions, our desire to be seen as right are roused even greater. I mean, at least if we're accused of something that we did, even though we may not like the punishment, even though we might not like the fact that we're being accused of it, at least we know it's right, it's just, the accusation itself is just. But how do you feel when you are unjustly accused? When you are vilified and persecuted based on false accusations? I remember a number of years ago being in Louisiana. I was teaching a class with a very good friend of mine, a very godly man down in Baton Rouge in the capital there. And I remember that there was a a person who took a particular dislike to him and wanted to slander him and see him discredited and accused him of, Racial statements and racial slurs trying to to discredit him. I was with him at the time that he had supposedly made these statements. I knew it was patently false. There was nothing true about the statements. But I still remember, I mean, both he and I, but especially him, just the frustration with the unjustness of the accusations. The consternation of, you know, who's going to see this? Who's going to actually believe that I didn't say this? I know for a fact there are some this morning who are undergoing or have recently undergone slander, who are being persecuted unjustly. Some of you this morning are undergoing attacks at work or in life, and are under the weight of that this morning, trying to bear up while being falsely accused. And while not every person accused is a believer, and while not Every accusation we endure as a result of being a Christian, it is a common experience of believers that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and are on the receiving end of slander, false accusations, and persecution. Almost like we have a bullseye painted on our back. Nero, after setting fire to Rome, found the Christians to be a very convenient scapegoat for his actions. So he began spreading rumors and lies and persecuting. Augustine, a few hundred years later, said anyone that begins to be godly, presently he must prepare to suffer reproach from the tongues of adversaries. This country as a whole is becoming more and more antagonistic towards Christians, anyone who desires to live godly. And if you're not already enduring attacks, you can expect them in your lifetime. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting next to the person who's undergoing some of these slanderous false accusations. After the service, they come up to you. They begin just telling you what's going on. And they ask you, what comfort is there that this is going to be okay? What do I do? How do I respond to these people? How do I respond to what's going on? Well, the answer to these questions... Or in Psalm 7. I've entitled the psalm this morning, The Persecuted Saint's Plea to the Righteous Judge. Go and turn with me to Psalm 7 as we read it together. As you're turning there, I'll let you know that we're going to observe three promises this morning from David's prayerful plea to give hope and encouragement to the persecuted saint in the midst of a wicked world. So let's read together Psalm 7. A Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in thee I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me. Deliver me, lest my soul, lest he tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass thee. Over them return you thou on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons, and he makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head. His violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and we'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. You may have noticed that as I began reading this text, that I read that little section that's in italics at the top of the psalm, a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush of Benjamin. You know, this is different than those bold titles you might have at the, in between paragraphs or chapters in your Bible. Those bold titles are provided by the publishers that help you understand the context and But they're provided by them, much like I provided a title this morning to Psalm 7. But these italicized titles that are most often found in the Psalms are part of Scripture. It's important to recognize that because it can provide some very helpful information, especially related to the Psalms and the context of the Psalms. In this case, it helps us to recognize that Psalm 7 is built around a very specific event, or at least a very real event. It's one of 13 psalms which refer to real and specific events in David's life. In this case, even though we know it's a very real event, the details and the time frame of when this event took place in David's life uh, is not clear. It, outside of Psalm 7, we don't have a clear indication of when these events took place. There's some different ideas that have been suggested that are quite pl- plausible. Um, you know, Given the context of david's life there's more than one time that he was accused by adversaries and pursued one that is suggested suggested is second samuel 16 the beginning of absalom's rebellion see absalom his son while plotting the rebellion against his father would sit in the city gate and catch people on their way to go see david to plead their case and he'd say the king doesn't really care about you doesn't really not really concerned you don't really think you'll find justice from that man do you and so he began to create within the heart ill will towards their king, leading to his rebellion. Another possibility is that it's the end of the rebellion in Second Samuel 18 when Absalom is killed. And Joab sends word to David that Absalom has died by the mouth of an unnamed Cushite. And perhaps David is recalling all of the events that led up to the rebellion culminating in Absalom's death. A final context that I personally lean towards is it being an expression of those who are falsely accusing and persecuting David while he was fleeing from Saul. You know that Saul was a Benjamite. Many of his counselors and friends were Benjamites who probably didn't like the idea of this Judean youth rising to a position of prominence. And they were all too happy to feed Saul's suspicions of David by creating untrue stories, slanderous accusations. Regardless of whether this is the specific time, whether it's one of those I've mentioned or whether it's another, the context is clear. This is a real event. David is really being slandered, and these false accusations are resulting in real persecution. The introduction also tells us that he sang, David sang. This psalm is not just a composition for public worship. This is the heartfelt cry of someone who is suffering, who's saying these words directly to the Lord, who pinned these while hurting. And it's in the midst of David's prayerful plea to the righteous judge that we observe three promises that give hope and encouragement to the persecuted saint living in the midst of a wicked world. The first promise we're going to look at this morning is that the Lord is the refuge of the righteous. Secondly, we'll look at the promise that the Lord is the judge of all men. And thirdly, we will see the promise that the Lord is the avenger of the afflicted. Each one of these promises are anchored in the unchangeable character and nature of the Lord God. These promises are as true and comforting today as they were when David first sang them. And that's because we serve a God who does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, because of the unchar- unchanging character and nature of God, we can delight in these same promises and provide, that provide the same comfort to us today. In the first five verses, we see the promise that God is the refuge of the righteous. And we see it displayed in two ways. We see it in David's prayer for refuge, and we see it in David's proclamation of innocence. It's the first two verses of the psalm that introduce us to not only the first promise but also to the problem that initiated David's plea to the Lord. As this psalm opens, David doesn't bother with introductory remarks, he doesn't explain what's going on. Instead, it opens with the Lord running to the Lord, with David running to the Lord as a place of refuge. It's like the child who in the middle of the night runs into their parents' room saying, "Mommy, Daddy, help me." child doesn't take the time to explain the context and the situation and the bad dream. He just begs for help. Help me. David will go on to explain in some detail the reason why he needs refuge. But he, he immediately begins by embracing the promise that God is the refuge. That God is his refuge. The term refuge envisions that of hiding oneself. The climate of Israel is not unlike that which we have here in Southern California. And in the middle of summer, under the intense gaze of the sun, what do you seek? Shade, shelter. And so this term is found in the context of seeking shade, seeking shelter. It's also used in the context of a hen or a bird, using its wings to protect its young, to protect the chicks from the natural elements and the natural its natural enemies. You see, David was intimately familiar with the character of God. He knew God intimately. He studied him. He knew God's word. He knew him personally. And I want you to turn with me as you see David express this idea of refuge other places. Psalm 34. I'm going to turn there with me. Take a right. Psalm 34, verse 22 The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And just turn over two more chapters to Psalm thirty six. Verse 7. How precious is thy loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And then just one more Psalm, Psalm thirty-seven, verses thirty-nine and forty. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. David knew the character of God. He knew that the Lord is a refuge for the righteous who trust in him. But we still have the question, why does David need refuge? The second half of verse 1 identifies that reason for us. There are persons who are pursuing David and intend to harm him. They want to bring him harm. And David in verse 2 graphically depicts this as being torn by a lion, drug away or ripped apart without anyone to deliver. In the Psalms, enemies are often portrayed as mauling their victims like a lion. We point you to numerous Psalms and other passages where this is the case. In Israel, Asiatic lions used to roam all over Israel in the ancient Near East. There's evidence to suggest they roamed as, up until as late as the Crusades. But I have to be honest, when I hear the term lion, it's easy for me to read over it without letting the meaning sink in. That's because a lion and a lion attack is not a part of my everyday experience. And maybe there's a few zookeepers in here. But apart from that, I don't think many of us understand the ferocity of a lion attack. I don't have to worry about a lion going after me while I'm driving down the five to San Diego. But let me ask you this. When David uses the term lion and the ferocity of a lion, was this an abstract idea for David? Not at all. Because David was a what? Before a king, he was a shepherd. And as a shepherd, in the hillside, in the countryside... Lions were a common experience. David probably, well, we know he knew firsthand face-to-face the ferocity and viciousness of a lion attack. He had seen the results of a lion tearing apart a lamb. He probably knew of or had witnessed lion attacks upon persons. If you've ever watched a cat tear up a mouse that it's been playing with, when it gets ready to enjoy that little snack, it can actually be a pretty gruesome ordeal. As it begins to disembowel and dismember and rip it apart. And that's just on a miniature scale. As a shepherd, David knew the danger that would befall the sheep if there was no shepherd to deliver it from the hungry lion and the loneliness of that Judean hillside. Do you remember David's interaction with Saul when he went up to Saul and demanded permission to fight Goliath? Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. When Saul begins laughing at the idea of this youth taking down Goliath, look at how David responds and remind ourselves of this. David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him, rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I guess he didn't like his snack being taken away. I seized him by the beard, struck him, and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. David's description is pretty amazing here. I mean, he, he glosses over the fact that with his bare hands, he grabbed the mane of the lion, struck him with his hands, and killed him. I don't know about you, but I would have been running. I wouldn't have been staying to fight with my bare hands. But he mentions it as if it's no big deal. And yet David knew how vicious, how ferocious the lion attacks were. He knew the harm that would fall to sheep, and that's why he ran after that lion. And David describes his action of going after a lion, and he uses what term? He says he did what for the lamb? He rescued it, right? It's the same Hebrew word that can also be used for save. In fact, it's the same word that we find in this verse. where He says, save me from those who pursue me. David knew that without the shepherd to rescue the lamb there was no hope for the sheep it would be torn apart dismembered ripped apart by its adversary the lion and so David calls upon God to do what he has promised to act according to his character and to rescue him to save him from the enemy I like this psalm especially because it does not contain the hopelessness in the face of slander of persecution it does not in Uh, introduce or begin with hopelessness from the very beginning we see the confidence that david has knowing where his security lies knowing from where where his help comes from the promise of god that he is our refuge is specifically specifically a promise to the righteous and we see david assert his righteousness and innocence in verses three to five The promise that God is a refuge of the righteous is predicated upon the person seeking and asking to be saved, that person being innocent of all evil. In verses 3 to 5, David asserts by means of an oath, when I say by means of an oath, I mean he says, let all of the bad things come upon me if what I say is untrue. He takes this very seriously. And by means of an oath... He pleads his innocence and sinlessness in his matter in, in the matter in which he is accused to God. That this refers again to a specific event in David David's life is made clear at the end of verse three or at the end of the first line of verse three. O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this this specific thing, David knew what it was. God knew what it was. Those who were around when David first penned this psalm probably knew what it was, but we don't know the exact context perhaps that's best because it allows us to fill in the slander and the persecutions which we endure knowing that there is a hope and a place for refuge. While the details of the event are not described, there is clearly something David has been accused of that is slanderous and it's aroused his enemies to seek his life. Verses 3 to 4, David pleads, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil, to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary what does he say in three statements in verse 5 he emphasizes the seriousness of his declaration of innocence let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it let him trample my life to the dust and lay my glory in the dust David is declaring that if he is not innocent of the evil he is charged with then he has no right to receive the promise of God's refuge and should instead be made subject to every evil that his enemies want to bring upon him And that God should take part in bringing that upon him. If he has done wrong, David is ready to bear the blame and consequences, even the most severe consequences. This is a far cry from many today, even in the church, who when they are confronted with sin in their life or something they have done, done to harm another person, excuse it away and want to ignore the consequences. They don't want to deal with their sin. Sure, they want... God to be their refuge. They want Him to protect them from those who are doing evil. But are they willing to deal with their own sin to make sure they are completely, in every way, innocent of the charge, going so far as to ask God to make the punishment worse if they still have sin in their life? For David, the real concern is not his reputation before his enemies, it's his reputation before God. While the enemies are the ones attacking David rightly recognizes he could not call upon God to comfort him if he is living in sin. If he is not innocent, he cannot ask God justly to be his refuge and his comfort. Instead, David says, God should become party to the enemies and join in persecuting him. I mean, we know that persecution and affliction can be the chastising of God. David recognizes this in his own life in Psalm 32 where he talks about his sin and the grief that God brought as a result of that sin. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 talks about the disciplining of God upon believers. And so it is here that David wants to make sure that that is not the case. That is not what is happening. So he declares his innocence, lays himself bare before God, inviting upon himself even greater affliction if he has wronged his enemies or is clinging to his sin. How many of us, when we are afflicted or persecuted, have the integrity and willingness to ask God to bring more persecution, to make the affliction more intense, if we have not dealt with sin in our life? I mean, do we take sin seriously enough to remove it entirely from our life, to cut it out wherever it may be? David's first concern was the integrity of his life. If he's going to find refuge and relief that can surely come from the onslaught of these wicked and slanderous people, then he knows he must be innocent. There are some sitting here thinking, in theory, this sounds great. If I seek God in innocence, having confessed and repented of any sin in my life, then he's going to be my refuge and my shelter. But this sounds too good to be true. Does it really mean that the slander stops? Does it really mean that people stop believing the slander? Does it really mean that the persecution immediately ceases because God is my refuge? The answer to that question is no. This promise of God as a refuge for the righteous does not mean that everything in the world is suddenly made right. It can mean that God deals immediately with the situation, and we're reminded of that later in the psalm, but that is not what God as a refuge means. It is a promise that God will never leave nor forsake you. It is the promise that no matter how bad the storm becomes, even if it involves death, that comfort can be sought that enables you to endure it. If you're outside in the middle of the hot summer sun, and you find shade, did the sun stop shining? Well, then what's the point of the shade? It's to help me endure the sun that is shining. When a child runs to their parent terrified of the storm, when the child is enveloped in the arms of their parent, did the storm stop? Does the child find comfort and peace because the storm has stopped blowing outside? No, he finds comfort because he believes in the character of his parents that the parent is greater than the storm. When bishops Latimer and Ridley were chained to the stake, about to be burned for their faith in God, did Latimer's words to a downcast Ridley extinguish the flames? Or did they bring comfort that allowed him to endure death as the flames leapt around him and consumed his flesh? When Stephen was being stoned by the Jews for his belief in God, did the vision of heaven stop the stoning? No. What did it do? It allowed Stephen to endure the stoning and cry out, Lord, be merciful on those who are throwing the stones at me. When David seeks God as his refuge, it does not mean the attack stops. But rather that there is comfort in the midst of the attack. That David knows he can endure whatever may come if God will be his refuge. If God will stand beside him. David penned Psalm 23 as well. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David's confidence and trust comes from what he knows about God. A child loves and trusts and finds comfort in their parent because of what they know about their parent. It is incumbent upon us. If we really desire this, we need to know our God. The greater we know our God, the more we study Him, the more we learn about Him, the more intimately we know Him, the greater the comfort becomes. The greater the encouragement, the stronger our faith becomes to endure the slander, the accusations, the persecution that comes. Spurgeon said, From these verses we may learn that no innocence can shield a man from the calumnies of the wicked. And because wickedness will come, even when we are walking innocently, we have the firm promise that God is our refuge who will comfort us amidst the storm. Now the righteous will always be the subject of persecution and slander. And while the promise of God as our refuge provides comfort... It does not necessarily ease the consternation that we feel when we see the wicked continue to prosper, does it? I mean, even when I find comfort, why, why do they get still have the position they have? Why are they the rich? Why are they still successful even though they attack me? Where is justice, God? As to this frustrating reality that David speaks in the next promise we have from this, from this psalm, that the Lord is the judge of all men. The promise that God is the judge of all men is found in verses 6 through 10. And there's really three ways in these verses that God, as judge of all men, provides comfort to David in the midst of slander and the persecution he is enduring. David is reminded that God has already appointed a judgment for all men. No one is going to escape that judgment. Secondly, David knows he'll be judged on the basis of his righteousness and integrity. And thirdly, David knows that the Lord is not deceived by men. And knows what's in their hearts and minds. Look at verses 6 and 7. These verses provide three statements. Again, these three emphatic statements provide urgency to David's plea. His plea that God would act as judge of all men. He says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me, for you have appointed judgment. David is praying for God to bring justice into action. A justice that God has already decreed. Again, this comes from knowing God. And so he knows it's already been decreed. David is praying. He's reminding himself that God will deal justly with all men. At the end of verse 6, David shows that he is asking for nothing but what God has already said he will do. Calvin helps to remind us that this is the rule which ought to be observed by us in all of our prayers. We should in everything conform our request to divine will, just as John instructs us in 1 John 5.14. And it's there that it says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But what is this judgment that has been appointed? While we don't have time this morning to look in depth at all of the judgments of God, that have been appointed, we are reminded in acts seventeen thirty one that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed and Paul adds to that in romans two five to six but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Because God has already appointed judgment in verse 7, David asks God to assemble the divine courtroom and seat himself on high as judge. He says, Let the assembly of the peoples encompass thee. Over them return thou on high. This is courtroom language. David calls for the heavenly courtroom to be arranged, to be set up, so that he might plead his case. And that leads us to the, the second part of God is the righteous judge, the judge of all men that provides comfort. We see the comforting reminder that not only is God's judgment already appointed for all men, and so thus none will escape it, every man will be judged, whether in this life and the next or just in the next life. We see that judgment is on the basis of each person's righteousness. We see that in verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity within me. Now David was pretty amazing guy man who's described as a man after god's own heart but he was also a pretty horrible guy let's be honest he was an adulterer he was a murderer he was a pretty horrible father so what gives this man the ability to make such a self-righteous statement that judge me according to my righteousness The answer to that is that this righteousness, though possessed by David, is not something David earned through his life, through his actions. Turn with me to Romans 4. Romans 4, beginning in verse 3. For what does Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And here we have the words of David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account see, David had experienced the joy of salvation. He describes that joy in Psalm 51, 12. His righteousness had nothing to do with himself. And so with confidence, though David knows he's a sinner, all you have to do is read all of Psalm 32 to see how clearly he views himself as a sinner and a wicked man. Deserving of punishment. But David says, my righteousness, because he knows God will defend him. On the basis of righteousness that has been imputed to him by because of faith, not on the basis of his own life and his own works. He says, my righteousness, because God gave him that righteousness, not because he earned it. It becomes even clearer through this that David's chief concern is not the wicked. It's not the slander. It's not the persecution of the wicked. Certainly, David desires to be delivered from this. There's no doubt about that. None of us... None of us are so masochistic as to wish punishment and suffering upon ourselves for no cause. So certainly there's a desire to have that relief. But David's most important, his primary, central concern is his standing before God. David's concern is that he live rightly before God. David's already said in verses 4 to 5 that if he is not innocent before God, he should be overtaken and destroyed by his enemies. Persons who have the righteousness of God, who are walking in obedience, have absolutely nothing to fear from divine scrutiny. From divine judgment. If you are fearful of divine scrutiny, it means one of two things. One, it means that you are a believer with sin in your life, and you cannot open yourself up and let God seek Out the sin in your life because you know you're already guilty you know you wouldn't stand in judgment you don't want God to look too closely if that's the case you need to repent heard that this morning regarding communion repent of that the other possibility is that you're here this morning standing under divine condemnation awaiting a horrible judgment and the fear that you have the lack of comfort you have is a very good thing Because that lack of comfort, that fear, that condemnation you feel is a constant reminder that you are but a breath from hell. And the call for you is to cast yourself upon the one who delivered his son. Cast yourself upon the son who died on the cross for our sins. It's only there upon Christ that you will be saved from the mouth of the lion. David takes encouragement in this because he is innocent. Because he knows that the, he has been delivered. He is righteous because of the righteousness that God has given. And so in verses 9 and 10, he has a final encouragement. And it comes, that comes from the promise that God is the judge of all men. David knows that in these verses, and in these verses recognizes that God is not deceived by men. He knows what's in their hearts and minds. David prays that the evil of the wicked will come to an end. We see that there. We'll let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. I could take you throughout scripture to show you, David understood that this is the culmination of the world. This is the culmination of all men. One day, God will sit as king and all wicked, wickedness will end. The righteous will be upheld and there will be peace upon this earth. David knew that is what we are looking for. And it's because he knows that that will happen, that God will do that. He utters his prayer and takes comfort in the fact, it shows the divinity of this judge when he says, "For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds." This judge does something that no human judge can do. This divine judge, this righteous judge, knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart." And so David knows. He takes comfort in that fact. He knows he has nothing to hide, so he wants God to seek out his heart, search my heart. But God, I also know because you know the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that no wicked person, no matter how clever, no matter how deceitful, no matter how well they have constructed their scheme, will confound you, will get by you. No one can deceive God. So David takes comfort in the fact that he doesn't have to defend himself to God. God sees what's going on. David standing before God is not in jeopardy by any man's schemes. No deception of man will confound God and put me at stake, because God sees it. And so David says in verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God becomes his shield. When the attacks come, he knows he can rely upon God who will deflect them, because God knows what's in the hearts and minds. He knows what's really going on. David doesn't have to defend himself in the heavenly courtroom. God is there acting as his defense defense lawyer. The one with the shield. Knocking away the slanderous accusations of the enemy. And David takes great comfort in this. And he again reminds himself and us. That God is the savior of the upright in heart. Reminds us. Of the need to not only confess our sins and be saved eternally, but to be innocent in this life of any evil David's comfort that God David's comfort from the promise that God is the judge of all men is found in David remembering that God has already appointed a judgment that no one escapes it, whether in this life or this life this life in the next or just in the next. David knows he'll be judged on the basis of righteousness that is given through faith. He praises God that it's not because of his works. David finds comfort that the Lord is not deceived by men, but the righteous judge knows the heart and the mind. We've looked at two of the promises that give hope and encouragement to the persecuted saint. The promise that the Lord is the refuge of the righteous, and the Lord is the judge of all men. We're now going to turn our attention to a third promise. The promise that God is the avenger of the afflicted. This is found in verses 11 through 16. Verse 11 reiterates what we saw in verses 6 to 10, that God is indeed a righteous judge. He is a just judge. And it goes on to say that because He is a righteous judge, because He is a just judge, He is indignant every day. A righteous God takes offense His anger is riled every single time he sees wickedness happen. And how often does wickedness take place? Every day. And thus we have a righteous judge who is indignant every day. This, David knows, is just an expression of the world in which we live. That evil is perpetrated every day. The encouragement here begins by remembering and reminding ourselves again that it does not go unnoticed. Not only is judgment appointed for all, all men, but wickedness that goes on no matter where in the world it takes place. God notices it and and it creates indignation it angers him as a believer we need to we, we can take great comfort in this again, as long as we are walking in obedience as Paul in Philippians said, in Philippians 2.15, when he said, Pro- Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. It's important, though, to remember here is, as we look at this. As we look at the promise that God is the avenger of the afflicted. That because God is a just judge, he will unleash his indignation Upon on this In this earth, he will unleash his indignation upon any who are afflicting. Upon believers and unbelievers. You see, God cares very much about his glory. Israel was to be a light to the nations. And so God dealt very quickly with sin. Nadab and Abihu, while offering strange fire, were struck down. Uzzah, while reaching out to stop the ark from falling in the mud is immediately consumed. God takes sin and disobedience very seriously. In the New Testament, we know that the church, which is to be the light to the nations, that God will not tolerate sin in its midst. We have the example of Ananias and Sapphira. And I tell you this because it is serious that God is the avenger of the afflicted. It is a serious thing that we get out of his way. That we not harbor sin in our lives that brings that vengeance upon us. It is not popular in Christianity today to think of God as an avenging God even against believers. No, it does not mean the loss of salvation. I will be clear on that point. But there are many who want you to think that becoming a Christian is a get out of jail free card. That you don't have to be too careful. You can harbor some sin. That is not the way it is with God. Remember that David's entire appeal that God will comfort him and be his refuge is predicated upon two things that he is justified and that he is innocent of all charges that he is that he's right that he's sinless in regard to these things. We need to be quick to repent of sin. Now, I don't want you to think that I know that there 's many who are suffering here unjustly you 've done nothing to bring it on yourself. I know you there 's slander there 's persecution going on and where that 's the case, I know it 's very real it 's very painful and David recognizes it david 's enduring it I understand it i i 've been persecuted i 've been slandered I know it hurts. But we also need to recognize that not all slander, not all persecution is because we've walked so uprightly and so godly. Sometimes we bring it upon ourselves. And so David's cry is that he be innocent and righteous before God. And if that's the case this morning, as I hope it is with everyone here, there is great and immense comfort found in these words and in God being the avenger of the afflicted. But we need to be careful because we don't want to get caught up in that. Even though David cannot lose the righteousness that is imputed, David said that he deserved, if he was not innocent, to be afflicted. But look at verses 12 through 13. And this gets into why it is so serious and why it is so important that we not be among the afflictors. Because when God avenges, he avenges with deadly force. Look at those verses. If a man does not repent... He will sharpen his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons, and he makes his arrows fiery shafts. When God does avenge, he acts with this deadly force. And it's important to notice two things. First is the first call to repentance. We should be careful before we pray for these things. You see, David doesn't pray for this to happen to the ungodly he is recognizing the character of god he is recognizing that this is true this is how god acts so david even reminds him repent now repent now lest this take place we are thankful that god is not slow about his promise but is patient There are many in this room who are thankful that God did not deal immediately with them when they were in sin or immediately with them while they were unrighteous, but was patient, forbearing, waiting for you to be saved. And so David, the second important thing here is he's leaving this in God's hands. It is not David's sword. It is not David's bow. It is not David's deadly weapons or David's fiery arrows. They are God's. And that is incredibly important. Knowing what the Bible says about God helps to inform our prayers and protects us from bitterness. It helps protect us from praying things that are contrary to God's will. It helps us keep the right perspective. It helps us to pray for the repentance of those who are afflicting. A few months ago, my wife came to me to, in relation to a, an issue that had happened a couple of years ago. Go to us, where we were afflicted, where we were we were hurt unjustly, and this is stuck in my mind because she was she was studying scripture. She began to see how God deals with those that afflict and harm. Her attitude changed. It changed from one of, it wasn't necessarily bitterness or hatred, it was just frustration at the scenario and the situation. And it changed to one of compassion. Because she started to realize, and she told me, I'm more fearful of what God will do. And you see David reminding him, repent. You see, knowing what God will do, knowing how severe his punishment is, how deadly his punishment is, should cause us to pray for mercy for those that are afflicting us. Obedient and faithful believers can take comfort in the fact that the wickedness of the world does not go unnoticed and it will be dealt with severely in this life or the next. But we have to remember that God is the one who will act and he will act in his own timing. And again, how gracious is God that he acted in his own timing with us and didn't punish us when we first deserved it. The writer of Hebrew reminds us of this truth when he says in Hebrews 10.30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge the people. In verses 16 and 17, not only is David certain that God will avenge those who are persecuted, that he will judge unrighteousness in his timing with deadly force, but in these verses, God recognizes Some of the ways in which God has confounded the wicked in this life. And again, it won't always happen in this life. But when it does, according to David, he brings their own plans back upon their own heads. Or to borrow colloquialism, all their plans backfired. David expresses how those who create plans to cause trouble against the righteous frequently find that it does not produce its intended result. Rather, the evil scheme will be turned back on the plotter, as verse 15 and 16 shows. And I'm certain, I have no doubt, that if we got together and started talking about circumstances in our lives, the lives of people we know, we could come up with a number of examples to show how this is very true, how God has dealt with evil by causing their own wickedness to come on their own heads. The Bible has also provided us some wonderful examples. Do you remember King Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel? Remember what happened when Ahab was had that little hissy fit, one in Naboth's vineyard? And so he instigated Jezebel to murder? Remember what happened to Ahab where he was killed? First Kings twenty one nineteen, the dogs licked Ahab's blood where they licked Naboth's whose vineyard he had stole. Probably my favorite example is in the book of Esther. It's really the whole book. But did you. You remember the, the story? Now you've got Haman who really hated the Jews. And specifically he hated Mordecai, and he plotted and schemed and devised on how to how to eradicate Jews from the world. Wanted to hang Mordecai on these elaborate gallows he had built. And where did what happened to Haman? He hung on those gallows. In these verses, verses fourteen to sixteen, does the name of God appear? How about a pronoun for the name of God? But who's at work? God's clearly at work. This is what theologians call a divine passive. Where just because you don't see the name of God, by no way means that God is not working. In fact, he's always at work, actively involved. And by leaving out the name of God, they actually heighten the attention that God gets. You realize the book of Esther, the entire book is a divine passive? And yet we clearly know that God is the one at work in that story. And so it draws further attention to him. It's important that we see that God is at work so that we don't try to take revenge ourselves and become the afflictors. We leave it in God's hand. If any of us have ever tried to seek vengeance on our own, does it satisfy? And the answer is no. That's because we've stepped outside of what belongs, we've tried to take for ourselves what belongs to the Lord. As Paul in Romans twelve nineteen says, vengeance belongs to the Lord. I left out a very important Thing at the very beginning of the psalm. The very first verse, the very first phrase, David says, The Lord, who's God? My God. Do you understand the significance of this? It is only because the Lord is David's God that David can claim these promises, that David can rely on these promises. David finds comfort and assurance that God will be a refuge, that God will judge, and God will be an avenger because he is his God. This morning, if you cannot say, my God, if you are sitting here surrounded by those who are finding comfort, taking comfort, and you have no comfort in these words, I pray with you, repent that you may call him your God. Because right now these promises do no more good for you than the promise of the Prime Minister of England that all English citizens get a tax break. Because it has no effect upon you. It cannot help you. It cannot change you. It cannot comfort you. I pray that you repent this morning because of your sin, the wickedness. You be counted among the righteous. That you can take comfort in these words. That your citizenship be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. The psalm ends with David singing praise, doesn't it, in verse 17? I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Clearly something has changed. The afflictors are still there. The enemy has not gone anywhere. But David has found comfort in the midst of affliction and like Paul and Silas, when in prison, he is able to sing to God in the midst of suffering. Here, even though David has yet to see the results of God's vindication... He has confidence to offer anticipatory praise. For true praise and worship to take place, there must be a theological motivation behind it. Otherwise, it just becomes a cacophony of sound to the Lord. In this psalm, we're provided with ample reason to sing God's praise as we seek Him as the refuge of the righteous, as the judge of the world, as the avenger of the afflicted, And as Spurgeon said in closing out this psalm, the slandered one is now a singer. His harp was unstrung for a little season. And now we leave him, sweeping its harmonious chords and flying on their music to the third heaven of adoring praise. Let's pray. Father, we take great comfort that you are a refuge for the righteous. Father, I pray for those who are afflicted who are persecuted, how they would take comfort in these words. I pray for all of us that we would constantly seek to obey you, to walk innocently before you, that when we are afflicted, our standing before you is in no way compromised. Help us to honor you in all that we do. And as we sing, Father, let it be with unburdened hearts, because you are our refuge. Amen.